Lord, we have, we have nowhere else to go. This world offers us no lasting security or hope or even purpose. And so we, we fling ourselves upon you. Uh, we, we cling to you because you alone offer refuge and strength hope and life, meaning in the midst of suffering. And even today, God, we, uh, apart from our own planning as pastors, uh, this message happens to, to land on September 11th, which for most people in this room, if not all of us, uh, stands as the most vivid demonstration of evil that we've ever seen. And so we even just reflect on the many lives that were lost, the many exhibitions of bravery uh, as men and women ran toward the towers as they crumbled and the thousands of people who lost their lives. God, we were surrounded by the rubble of evil and suffering. Even this week, uh, suffering has, the last couple weeks, has reared its head in our lives as a church family. And we, uh, we pray for Pastor Bill and his wife Laura and for Ross and McLaren and their family as, as they lost uh, Bill's brother Jeff this week to cancer. We pray for your comfort. Uh, God, as we, we talk about comfort, this isn't just some theoretical, philosophical message that we need, some academic answer. God, we need real help for real pain. We need real comfort for real loss, and we have nowhere else to go but to you. And so we gather as a church, and we sing, and we stand before your word, and we consider truth because we need it to anchor our souls. And I pray for every single person in this room, particularly for anyone who comes into this place more mindful of evil, more mindful of suffering, more mindful of pain than they are mindful of your presence. I pray that you would supernaturally confront them with your ever-present help in time of need, that you would graciously comfort them through your promises and not by their own circumstance. I pray that they look for hope in you. I need your help, Lord. I need your help with this message. I always feel weakness Stepping into this pulpit today, I feel particular weakness, and I need your help to love your people well, uh, to tackle this subject in a brief manner well. And I'm grateful that you give us answers, and I'm grateful that our greatest problem is solved. And so we have great hope and expectation that the very things that we need the most that we can find in you. And we love you, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. All right. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be with you and uh, open God's Word. And as Chris, Pastor Chris mentioned a second ago, we are in a little bit of a unique stretch of weeks because we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we'll be getting to Second Peter uh, in the coming few weeks. But uh, this morning we're on week three uh, of a series called Real Talk. We're addressing some of the biggest objections to Christianity as well as some of what, what you might consider the most major issues culturally that we want to speak to biblically. 
And so today we're going to be looking at the reality of evil and suffering. And I want to just kind of invite you in this way as I share these words, as I wrote them this week, thinking about just the, the sweetness of the fact that we have hope in Jesus. And maybe this, this might be the part you remember the most. Um, let me just read this. It says, Jesus invites the weary to come and find rest. Jesus provides the outcast a place at his table. Jesus provides the orphan a place in his family. Jesus draws near to the oppressed and offers them compassion. Jesus speaks to the brokenhearted and offers them comfort. Jesus speaks to the hurting and he offers them healing. He speaks to the fearful and he offers them refuge. And one day Jesus will return and he will usher in a kingdom with doors that will forever be shut to evil and grief and pain and loss and suffering. And while we wait, we look to him and we put our hope in him. Now, in this series, as we think about this topic, what I don't want to do is come in here and just kind of give some trite Christian points as it relates to evil and suffering. Because this topic is not just a topic that needs to be addressed. It's an experience that we all have. And if you haven't lived long enough yet to experience real pain and suffering, the bad news is you will. On this side of heaven, this life is filled with all sorts of evil and suffering. We'll live long enough to journey through really difficult things. So this isn't just a topic that needs to be addressed. It's experiences that we all have. And if we actually just in a room this size, a couple hundred people, if you were somehow able to kind of collect up our collective suffering, individually kind of put them in some sort of display, and we were to be able to kind of take that all in, I think we would be profoundly shaken. We probably couldn't finish the service because of how dark and how real some of that pain and suffering is. It's a real experience that we have on this side of heaven. And I want to just, maybe just for some of you, encourage you this morning, like your pain is real. Like your loss is real. Your grief, as dark and painful as it is, creates real questions and doubts. And maybe some of you need to hear this morning, if you're doubting this morning, don't be ashamed and don't be afraid. There's a unique way in which you might even be able to say that doubt is like a, a flame that fuels faith. Because there's, there's portions of our life, there's experiences that we have that give rise to certain questions and doubts. And if we can't speak to them here, if we can't speak to them through a Christian lens, then what hope do we really have? And that's really the purpose and the hope of this message in this series. Some have said that the reality of evil and suffering may be the strongest argument against the existence of God. And many apologists and philosophers would say there are two categories of this argument. One is an intellectual one, and one is an emotional one. And I'm going to spend time, more time on the emotional side than I will on the intellectual, but I want to speak to some areas of the intellectual, maybe more academic side, maybe for anyone in this room who stands on the side of that argument that the presence of evil and suffering is an argument against the existence of God. There's a couple things I'll give you to consider this morning but I'm grateful that you're here, if that's your posture. And my, my desire this morning is to provide you with conviction and comfort. Conviction as you face the intellectual argument against God, as you wonder why 
certain things happen or have happened to you. I want to provide you conviction. I want to provide us collectively comfort as we face the emotional effects of evil and suffering. And maybe it goes without saying, I'm not going to be able to completely solve this for you this morning. That's a fairly freeing reality for me as a preacher. I can't solve this for you today. There have been volumes upon volumes of material written on this subject alone throughout history. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. A lot of it's really helpful. So I'm not going to be able to cover everything or say everything about everything, but I pray that what I do say will be helpful to you. I want to provide a little clarity, a little hope, a little conviction, a whole lot of comfort because the experiences are real. The first thing I would say is this. In an unexpected way, in an unexpected way, the presence of evil is an argument for the existence of God. The presence of evil is actually in a surprising way an evidence for the existence of God because evil can only exist in a world where good exists. So the argument would be something like this. To assert a lack of good in the world assumes there is a good way or an ideal way that things should operate or feel or go for us in our experience as people, right? But we have a deep sense that something is off, that it's wrong, whether it be a broken bone or an ingrown toenail. Like you recognize something's a little bit amiss, and for all of us, like we usually have a pretty good understanding that things aren't the way they're, they're supposed to be. There's something wrong with the way that the world is functioning, the way that people act. There's something wrong with us, in fact. And there's a deep sense that it shouldn't be this way. And I think some of the wisest counsel we could hear, even as we go into funerals, is that we should lean into that feeling. Because the reality is, is it's right. There is, there is something that's not quite right. In fact, there's an there's a ache of the human heart that says what really was present in the garden, that life shouldn't end. Like, we, sh- we should be able to live and enjoy life fully and completely and even eternally, but something's wrong. But for something to be wrong, it means that there has to be a standard for something that's right. Otherwise, evil doesn't have any basis. We talked about this a little bit last week. But what we believe as Christians, the the determination of good and evil belongs to God. God is the forever standard of what is right. Psalm 119, verses 142 and 144. says, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Your testimonies are righteous forever. So as a Bible-believing Christian, we believe God possesses a forever kind of righteousness. He is the ultimate source and standard of what is good and right. He's the plumb line for perfection. That's what the Bible depicts and gives us as believers. It's only a light of God's moral standard, his law, his goodness, that evil can actually be seen as evil. Evil can't exist without a standard for what is good, for what is right. Atheism has no base for morality. We talked about this a little bit last week. And can science explain everything. It doesn't mean that atheists aren't moral people. Many of them are, if not most of them, generally speaking. But atheists have no justification for or basis for morality. A godless world has no means by which to call something evil because there's no standard ultimately for what's good. It's just dependent on and relative to the individual and how they define it. 
So the first thing we could say is evil can only exist in a world where good exists. And good can only exist in a world where God exists. So the question from culture might sound something like this. You might have even heard this argument. If God is completely good and if God is all-powerful, then why does evil exist? And it would be something like this. Either God is unable to stop evil, which makes him not powerful and not God at all, or God is able to stop evil but chooses not to, which makes him not good. That's the, that's the dilemma. It's a legitimate question, but it poses kind of a false dichotomy as if these are the only two options we have. But what if, what if these aren't the only two possibilities? Is it possible at least that God allows the presence of evil and suffering for reasons that don't do damage to his righteousness or his goodness and his power? Is it possible that God can exist and evil can exist as well? Is it possible for God to have sufficient moral reasons to allow suffering in his world? And most philosophers at this point in our age can't find a satisfactory answer for those questions. They can't make it impossible that God could exist even if evil and suffering do exist, which we know that they do. Maybe he's just stated another way. If it's God's aim to fill a kingdom with as many Christians as possible, which may be a fair summary of God's motivation for history, He's building a kingdom. He has a kingdom. He wants to fill it with as many people who follow him as possible. Is it at least possible that the ideal conditions for that to happen would be a world where there is pain and evil and suffering? Is it at least possible? I would submit to you it is possible. It is possible. It's possible for God to have sufficient moral reasons to allow suffering in his world. And in fact, evil and suffering have a unique capacity to awaken us to our need for God. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And my guess is for at least some of us, we've had the experience of, of going through pain and drawing near to God or feeling his presence in such a way that we just never would have had we not gone through that particular valley. I see some of you shaking your heads. You've had that experience. And that's some of what I think Lewis is getting at. Like pain has a unique capacity. And this framework we call life and the world to awaken us to our need for God in ways that the days of sunshine just simply don't. So here's another question we might get. Like so much of the evil and suffering in this world is caused by the evil choices of men. We'd all say yes and amen. From September 11th to Nazi gas chambers, from child abuse to sex trafficking, you could say that those evils are caused by the evil choices of men. Here's one thing as Christians we have to, we have to talk about, we have to realize is that men have been given free will. By the design of God from the beginning, we've been given the ability to choose. And free will introduces the possi possibility of evil. Having a world or having people who have the ability to choose introduces the possibility of evil or evil choices. Having been made in God's image, we're both rational, we're able to reason or logic, and we're also moral beings. 
So reason means able to make rational decisions or apply logic. We do this all the time, right? From little things to significant things. You stand at the crosswalk, it says walk or don't walk. You can make the decision if it's a good idea to walk when it says don't walk. Some of you have done that. And sometimes it's more dangerous than others. But that's kind of a rational, that's a, you have a choice. Like in the middle, I could, I could get up and leave right now and go get a milkshake. You guys couldn't stop, I mean, you could stop me if you wanted. There's enough of you. But I could just walk right out of here and you guys would be like, what in the world? Is, why is he going to get, I mean, that's it. We live in a world where we make all kinds of choices. Right? But free will introduces the possibility of those choices not being things that bring about good, as it were, but they bring about evil instead. We're, we're moral beings. To be a moral or immoral person involves behavior, decisions, and character. To put it plainly, it involves choices. In order to truly reflect the nature of God, to be made in his image, God had to give us the ability to, to choose between right and wrong, good and evil. So the response might be something like this. Well, just take away our choice then. You get rid of evil. Problem solved. I should have been God. Right? Easy solve. Just take away our ability to choose. Like, easy fix. Well, there's one major problem with that. And the major problem is this. If, if, if you take away the free will of individuals made in God's image, yeah, I would, I would grant you, you take away the possibility for evil. Good on you. That is a solution for that. The challenge is, you also take away the possibility of the greatest moral good, namely love. So in the framework of the Bible, love is the highest source of good. It's the highest choice of good. In interaction with the religious leaders, Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was in the law of Moses. In essence, the question was this, what is the highest moral good? And this was Jesus' answer. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said to the Pharisee, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The highest moral good is to love. To love God and to love other people. Love is the greatest moral good, but for love to be love, it has to be voluntary. Let me just play out a couple scenarios for you. Let's just pretend the first time I met Haley, some 22 years ago, when I met her at this marginal Italian restaurant I worked at, and she came in, I just love at first sight. And so I walk up to her, I'm like, hey, I've made a decision that you're going to love me. And I'd, I'd like for you to do that. I'd like right now, just start loving me. Like, I don't, it probably wouldn't have played out well for me. Like, we probably wouldn't be here 22 years later married. Because we don't do that. We know, like, intuitively. Like, you don't, you don't demand love from, so that's not love. Right? Like, if every interaction I had with you here on Sunday morning, if I shook your hand, like, hey, good to see you. Hey, tell me you love me. Tell, do it. Like, it's funny, but that's kind of what it boils down to. It's like, you can't force the decision to love, love has to be voluntary. Biblical, godly love isn't merely a feeling. It's a conscious choice. Love has to be freely chosen or it isn't love. John 15, 12 through 13, this is one example of this. This is my commandment that you love one another, not that you feel loving toward one another, that you love, actively do it as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends, make a decision to sacrifice for his friends. Free will introduces the possibility of evil, but it also maintains the source of the highest moral good, namely love. The third point I'll give you is evil and suffering can only have purpose where God exists. Evil and suffering can only have purpose where God exists. A godless world squeezes out any potential purpose or hope from evil and suffering. If you're in this room, if you don't believe in the existence of God, let me just commend you to consider this particular point. All of the points, I hope, but this particular one is if you squeeze God out of all the pain and suffering in this life, quite literally, you are left with no purpose and no hope within or after your experiences of suffering. And I'll quote, I'll quote you from a famous atheist. I showed some of this quote last week. An atheistic world has us as human beings being fashioned impersonally by nothing more than natural processes with nothing and no one beyond or above us involved at all. So Rick, Richard Dawkins, famous biologist and author and a vocal atheist, says it this way in his book, River Out of Eden. And I, I, just, I really appreciate like the intellectual academic integrity of this statement. This really is the end of a godless world view. And he says this. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. That last word is so sad. Nor any justice. The universe we observe, which includes the various forms of suffering, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. It's hard to read that, but it's intellectually consistent with a godless world. Blind, pitiless indifference is what you have even in the worst moments and expressions of evil in human existence. There's no purpose. There's no justice. Because after all, there's no, there's no framework for moral good. So how can something be just when there's no judge and there's no law to govern what's evil and what's good? But for the Christian, praise be to God, there is purpose in and from our pain. And there's so much that could be said here. We saw this a lot journeying through 1 Peter. One of the mega themes of 1 Peter is talking to suffering Christians. Like suffering in this world is real and it's consistent. And sometimes it'll be because sometimes it'll just be circumstantially, but you're going to face it. But Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, it says this. It says, not only that, so if I go real quickly, I probably should have put this verse in there. So, Right before this, Paul says we should rejoice, exult, overwhelmingly celebrate the fact that we have been saved. We've been made a part of God's family. We have hope eternally. And then he says, not only that kind of rejoicing, but we rejoice in our suffering. Same terminology. We overwhelmingly rejoice. We exult in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It crystallizes our faith. Suffering does. 
Even when it seems meaningless, there's a work that God is doing to crystallize our faith and to push us beyond this world to the, the world and the life to come. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. There's a tested genuineness of faith and steadfastness that brings about maturity through trials. And as Ted read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, one of the sweet pictures is this, is there's a ministry that God will give you through the way that you have been comforted by God in the midst of your pain. So to sum up 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul says that we, we have been comforted in our affliction. Actually, let's just read that together. I think we have it. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through, get three part of verse 6. Actually, let me just go there. We'll read it in full. Stop messing around. Second Corinthians 1, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 3 through 7. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. My prayer is this, is that for some of you in this room, like you need to feel the hope of this. I've had this experience uh, over the years walking with the Lord, and since I've gone through tragedy and loss, like losing my dad about 11 years ago. I've had the chance to sit across from people journeying through similar loss and be able to, to minister to them in ways that I wouldn't had I not gone through that difficulty. And I believe there's something in this text is kind of pushing that picture forward. You get comforted by God in the midst of your affliction, but it's not just for you. It's for the continuation of comfort. There's a ministry of comfort that God will give you as he comforts you. Isn't that awesome? Like we're ambassadors of comfort. Just like you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Like ministers of reconciliation. Like we're ministers of comfort. In fact, it seems like Paul is so convinced at this. He says it is for your comfort that we're comforted. The very reason that God is comforting me is so I might be a comforter to other people. That's substantial. I mean, it's good to receive comfort. But it's another to be able to give comfort and to be a blessing in return to other people. He provides us ministry that's part of the purpose in our pain. And we can bear burdens. And some of this, I think we need to be confronted and challenged at times. This came to mind. Chris and I were talking a little bit about this. Is it can be tempting, especially if we haven't gone through, we can't relate to a particular loss or pain. It can be tempting to kind of just preach principles and not bear the burdens of those who are hurting. So it's, it's quite possible, even with good intent, to walk into a room with somebody suffering and quote Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. That's true. That Bible verse is true. It's accurate. It's helpful. But there are moments where what we need to do is not proclaim principles, but just be present. There's books even written about this. Nancy Guthrie wrote a book. She and her husband lost two 
kids who are rare genetic disorder early in life, and she wrote a book about helping those who grieve, grieving with those who suffer. And some of the practical input that she gave is just be present. Be present and be slow to speak. So that ministry of comfort often would just be being in the same room, just sitting next to someone, letting them cry, letting them voice their pain and even their doubts and not feel like you have to be like the theological EMS running with like your Romans 8.28 mug and T-shirt on. Like That verse is important. Like I'm not trying to make fun of it. But I think we can inadvertently try to rush to the principle without bearing the burden. And part of us as God's people is we need to be patient with those who grieve, particularly when we don't understand the category of loss and grief. I remember being in a situation years ago, a good friend of mine and his, his wife, who we were serving with at the time, uh, they lost their teenage son, uh, just an unfortunate accident. And I got the call because my friend was out of town and his wife found their son. And so me and Haley got that phone call. And here's what happened. And she's hysterical. And so I have to drive to the scene and I get there. EMS has arrived. They're taking his body. And my friend, my friend's wife, just understandably hysterical. Like she, had, she didn't know what to say. She's looking at me with eyes just filled with tears and like, I don't know what happened. Like, he's gone. And that's not the moment just to prescribe some sort of Bible verse principle. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And it's just good to feel that weight. Like, I don't know. What, I don't have anything to give you. But here I am. Cry on my shoulder. I'm so sorry. It's good to acknowledge that things are evil and wrong and loss is painful and real. Because we don't have to make excuses for God. There'll be moments to anchor ourselves in theological truths, but sometimes those moments come later, months, even years later, where we have to sit down and anchor ourselves to truth. And by God's grace, through His Spirit, He'll do that more quietly in the heart of those who are hurting. Be present and be slow to speak. And if we do even those two things, be present and be slow to speak, it allow us to grieve with those who grieve, to weep with those who weep. We'll be able to enter into the pain of those who are in pain. And this is where I'll finish this morning. That entering into pain and suffering is really at the heart of Christianity. The entering into pain and suffering is central to the Christian message. Here's what I mean. Jesus entered into evil and suffering. We believe in a God, we Christians, believe in a God who doesn't merely provide us information about evil and suffering. He doesn't even only give us principles for dealing with suffering. The God that we serve, the Savior that we know, gave himself completely over to evil and suffering. He's not merely aware of evil and suffering and allowing it. In the life and death of Jesus, we see our God is familiar with suffering. Thank you, God. Isaiah 53, one of the most powerful depictions of this, written in the Old Testament some 700 years before Jesus even came. It writes about this unique man of sorrows. Two brief verses. You can read the whole chapter. It says, He this unique one who would come that points forward to Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus was despised, rejected, oppressed, judged, grieved, and he was sorrowful. He was mistreated, ridiculed, abandoned by those closest to him. He was mocked, beaten, and Isaiah 53 says he poured out his soul to death, death on the cross. His life is so inextricably woven with suffering, he is a man of sorrow. It's part of his name almost. And he's acquainted with grief. Hebrews 2, in a couple of different places, see this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. It goes on in verses 17 and 18, the same chapter. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, hear this this morning, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered and died, not only to taste death for us and to deliver us. Jesus suffered and died to help us, to help you, to sympathize with you in the midst of your real loss, real pain, real tragedy, and your real experiences of evil. A merciful, faithful, sympathetic high priest. And Jesus rose from the dead historically, and because he is alive, we have hope that despite the evil and suffering we face and feel in this life, all of it will one day give way to life and restoration, and justice will forever reign, and righteousness all together will be present forever. And finally, these last two things I'll give to you Maybe just as encouragement for those of you maybe facing a particular pain where you're just waiting for some sort of justice. I heard this term years ago and I've never forgotten it. Justice delayed does not mean justice denied. Healing delayed does not mean healing denied. The biblical picture of Christianity ends in full and final, perfect, justice for every single person that has ever lived. And the wonder of it all is that if you and I get justice, we'd be in hell like the masses of humanity forever. The wonder of the Christian message is that Jesus took our justice. Jesus took our shame. Everything you know that's ill about yourself, Jesus became that. And on the cross, he became a sponge to soak up the wrath of God for you so that you could be forgiven. 
that you also might know that he's not distant from your suffering. That he is a man of sorrow and he's acquainted with grief. And you can never look at him and say he doesn't understand. And one day, Jesus will return and he will usher in a kingdom with doors that will forever be shut to evil, grief, pain, loss, and suffering. But Lord, while we wait, And that hour seems long. That waiting seems long. But while we wait, we put our hope in you. While we wait, we put our trust in you. You are good and you're gracious. And you've shown us that through the cross. You're merciful and faithful. And you showed us that through the cross. Remind us now. Remind us, Lord, of the fullness of the forgiveness that we enjoy, Jesus, because of you.